And here we go. This is the podcast about my favorite topic probably ever. And I almost didn't want to do it because it's like, once you do that, where do you go? You know, once you hit perfection, once you win six championships, like Michael Jordan, where, what do you do after that? Do you run the Charlotte Bobcats into the ground? That's not what I want to do. But there's something I thought about a lot. And I just put about three hours worth of notes. I'm looking at five different screens right now, like Rain Man. Hopefully, usually I'm better at free flowing, but I like to have some notes. But this one, I'm just, <laughs> I, it looks like a crazy person is trying to podcast. And we'll see if I can keep all these balls in the air because there's just a lot of stuff to talk about. And, you know, I'm bearing the lead right now. What could he possibly be talking about? But I've already kind of given it, a, I've given it away with uh, the first line. So if you picked up on it, I mean, I hope you did because everyone and their mother has seen this movie at least three times. And I want to talk about one very specific, very special character. I would like to talk about Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker in The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's 2008 masterpiece. And for a little frame of reference, where I was in the summer of 2018, 2008 when this came out, uh, I was graduated from college, and I believe this was the most excited I had been to see a movie in my entire life up until that point. Because if you remember the marketing campaign, they actually released the first six minutes of the movie, like three months beforehand, which is, you know, the bank robbery heist scene where the Joker and, you know, four of his other uh, compatriots are all in these weird clown masks. And it's basically just a heat ripoff, which is, you know, the best movie ever. So if you're going to rip anything off and do it well, like Christopher Nolan can, like just do heat. Like I could use a new heat movie every five years, just get new characters and just repeat it because it's the greatest movie ever. It's just AK 47s in the middle of a big city and cat and mouse and just excellent bank robbers. And that's where this movie starts. So it's like, how can it get any better than this? But it does. But that first scene, when I first saw that on YouTube or on, yeah, no, it was on YouTube. Uh, I lost my mind. I was, I was in, and the trailer, when you saw, Heath Ledger as Joker with this caked on sloppy uh, anarchist kind of makeup. And he just looked like he'd been doing heroin for, you know, 15 days straight. <laughs> and he looks like he hadn't slept in six months. And he's got this kind of weird, jolting, hilty, kind of Tom Waits, kind of nasally Midwestern, but terrifying voice that kind of, Switched from switched octaves and switched volumes whenever he needed to do, and I was in. I was I wanted to see this movie more than anything, and I never see a movie more than once in a theater. Just you know, when I'm done with it, I'm done with it. Like why? I mean, what's I, most of the movies about the surprise, kind of the uh, taking it in in the theater. It's special, but I said to hell with my rules for this one, and I saw this movie uh, six times in theaters not four not five six times in theaters because i wanted to go with every one of my friends who love movies and i wanted to talk with them for about two hours afterwards about it and you know if i talked to the same person they'd get they'd be annoyed with me if i tried to talk to them for 12 hours about the same movie 
So I needed to kind of unleash my craziness on a new unsuspecting victim. So what makes this so just memorable? Because I think everyone, you know, is just burned into your brain is probably the best performance of the 21st century or before even. I mean, I'll it'll go toe-to-toe with anyone, I think. And no, no, I don't think. I know. I mean, anyone comes at me with anything. The only, you know, real real arguments against it. I'm not against it, but other people that are similar in these villain roles, Anton Segura from No Country for Old Men and it's Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. But, you know, those were full fleshed out, like real people. He was playing a cartoon character and was still more terrifying than anybody. In a PG-13 movie too, it's not like he was, you know, Hannibal Lecter's eating people. He's munching on livers and, you know, ripping people's faces off. And Anton Segura is using a cattle prod or cattle, yeah, cattle prod or cattle, whatever you put in the middle of their head, it's got like CO2 in it to kind of just stab them to death. He's using that to kill people. And they got to be as violent and gruesome and terrifying as possible. And Heath Ledger did it without any real violence that was like, you know, R-rated gore. This was in a PG-13 context. And I think that's even harder. So what makes it so great? Well, first of all, I mean, I think the fact that he died, you know, <laughs> uh, six months beforehand kind of added to the, added to the like creepiness of the role because he got so into character. There was research that, you know, he wasn't sleeping at night to try to get into that role. I think he was one of those actors that tries to be the performer the entire time. What's that called? It's uh. It's a school of acting. I know Pacino does it and De Niro does it and Daniel Day-Lewis does it. It's like they never leave character. God, uh, method acting. There we go. God, tip of my tongue with that one. And so he was just this terrifying, like onslaught of a performance and with just menace, unpredictability, precision, and you know, you didn't expect it from him. He was the heart, teen heartthrob from 10 Things I Hate About You. And he had like a kind of campy uh, 15th century explorer movie with uh, Matt Damon, Brothers Grimm, where it's like they're dealing with, you know, the supernatural and it was kind of corny. And I mean, I think people really took him seriously after Brokeback Mountain and, you know, like, oh, he can act. But that measure, that, that, uh, that was kind of a precision, uh, that was kind of an understated performance. And, you know, he was quiet. He was kind of closeted homosexual in Wyoming uh, in a time when that wasn't okay. So, you know, he just man a few words. This performance is all, you know, surface. He's just seething the entire time. And it's so jarring when a, someone just pulls that out of their, like, out of the repertoire. Like, usually if you see a movie... You see Daniel Day-Lewis is going to be on it, or you see like a Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know you're going to just get an explosion of a performance. This came out of left field. No no one saw this coming. And I think that kind of shock and awe made it even, it amplified how intense and fun it was to watch him just dominate the screen. I mean, to compare him to anything, I was trying to think of a sports analogy, and all I could think of was in 1961, Wilt Chamberlain, averaged 50.4 points per game. I didn't say that incorrectly. He averaged half a century mark the entire season 
and 28 28 rebounds and he just he was playing a different sport than everyone else i mean he was just he looked different you know he was 270 he looks like he could play today and no one else was in that realm of freakish athleticism and also just his stamina and his dominant performances i mean it was like he was he was playing with children basically he was the college varsity athlete playing with his middle school little brother and his team and that's how i feel heath ledger was in this movie and which is crazy to think because christian bales you know won an oscar uh morgan freeman if he hasn't won an oscar he's been in a bunch of uh oscar worthy stuff michael Caine's great and uh maggie gyllenhaal and aaron eckhart i mean these are all these aren't slouches and he just he literally just eats their lunch he's just it's all I care about during the movie. And he's only on screen for 25 minutes, give or take, which is just, I mean, it just shows that his efficiency, I mean, every scene he's in, I just watched them all back to back to back to back. There's like six or seven scenes all overall. And the fact that he does that while not being the central theme of the movie is pretty freaking incredible. So let's get into it. Uh, I mean, so we have that heist, heist scene in the beginning. And he's, we've kind of already found out that he tells all his other uh, cohorts to kill each other once they finish their mission. So it's like, you know, this guy is just anarchy and chaos. And you don't really see his face at first. He's wearing the mask. And then he finally takes it off and says, whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. And he just smiles and kind of grunts. And he has this kind of grin that's a growl. It almost looks animalistic. And, you know, his teeth are just the yellowest shade of yellow my god i mean that guy needs to get to a dentist and you know i mean there's just cracks in his uh face and it just looks i mean he looks he looks like he's halfway through meth addiction like he's gonna end up dead in a couple months but he's just put together kind of in a precise way i mean he has his own kind of mannerisms and he kind of he walks with kind of a limp and almost like he's kind of like awkwardly angled. Do you know what I mean? He's just this thin guy and he's kind of, he's walking like he has a hunchback, even though he's just a normal guy. And I just, I was like, I want to, I want to follow this guy. And his voice is just, he never wavers. He never seems to care what anyone else thinks. And I know that sounds weird, but it's kind of like, it's almost like a cult, uh, like a leader of a cult. He just has all the answers. He explains everything in his terms. And he's never, he's never persuaded by anything anyone says during the entire film. Like he doesn't change. He's a fully formed, he's fully formed about his ideas about chaos and anarchy and bringing down establishments and anyone who makes any kind of plans or organizes their life is just foolish because life is chaos. And he kind of, that's his goal, his uh, mission statement, if it was a TED talk was that I'm going to show you how stupid you guys are and that if and when chaos, I mean, tragedy strikes, everyone kind of just re- resorts back to chaos and he wants everyone to kind of feel how he feels. And then we have the mobster scene where all the mobsters are meeting in broad daylight in a restaurant because they're scared of Batman and Joker just walks in just laughing kind of unevenly. And he's not even, he's not even laughing. He's just saying, ha, he, ho, he, ha. And I think, I mean, that's even, you're just like, what is this guy doing? Because no one does that. 
I've never even, I don't think anyone, I've never seen anyone on screen just verbalize laughter in a slow kind of eerie way. And it's just, you know, the laughing uh, villain is always the best and he's just, he's enjoying every moment of this, you know, in this kind of freakish way. And then he goes, you know, you want to see a magic trick? And he puts a pencil on the, uh, on the desk and then someone tries to grab him and he puts the pencil through the guy's eye and just goes, ta-da. And you're, I mean, whoever wrote that deserves an extra hundred grand in their paycheck because that no one knew what that's the best. I mean, when you have jokes or when you have thrilling movies, the kind of the, when you're being led somewhere and you're not sure where they're going, that's the ultimate kind of audience attention. And when he puts that pencil down and said, want to see a magic trick, you have no clue what's going to happen. No one had any, you know, any association with what that could possibly mean and how he was going to violently murder that guy. So at the, I think every time I watch that in theaters, everyone just perked up during that scene, during that moment. It's like everyone kind of stood at attention, like electricity was going through their back. And, you know, moments like that are what make movies special and why you know, people dump hundreds of millions of dollars into these things to try to make that kind of moment. And they did it over and over again with this one character. So that's why I had to see it over and over and over again. And then he, when he leaves that scene, he's, uh, he's holding six grenades by kind of a drawstring and is, you know, just kind of messing with everybody. And he's never, he's never, he's never flummoxed. He's never kind of, you know, no matter what the other uh, gangsters say to him or what anyone argues against him, he doesn't he doesn't move from his points. He's an immovable object. You know, what I mean, he doesn't he doesn't want to he has no qualms uh, explaining to people why he's doing what he's doing. And he doesn't feel apologetic, sympathetic or empathy towards anybody else the entire time. And there's something moving about that to just normal people, because I think in society, we're all kind of self-conscious of ourselves and we always have self-doubt. Like even I'm talking about it right now and I'm, I'm nervous about the four or five people that are going to hear this. And I'm like, Oh man, is, did I say like too much? Or did I say, you know, a few more times than I should have, or have I covered all the bases or is is this coherent? And I'm just, I'm making a podcast about an imaginary character that was on screen for 27 minutes, 12 years ago. And I'm, and I'm a little nervous and, to watch someone who's 50 feet tall on the screen in white, red, and black face makeup with green hair and purple suits, just believing in himself and being complete, 900% confident that what he's doing is what he wants to be doing with his life and how he wants to be doing it. And with utter conviction, that's how he's convincing others. You're just kind of like, hmm. What's that guy going, got going on? It's kind of, I mean, it's that cult of personality. You just kind of, you gravitate towards someone who completely understands themselves and that's who they want to be. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I wouldn't want to be a murdering clown. I mean, not anymore. I, I try, I wasn't part of the insane clown part of posse when I was in middle school, but that's as close as I'll get. I was a juggalo. Um, I'm not afraid to say it, but it's really embarrassing actually when you say it out loud. So I am a little embarrassed. But that's not that's not what Joker is. See, Joker is unembarrassed, unabashed, and uncaring of what you think. And I, I can't get that point across enough. 
And I think that's the core of why he's just such a foil for uh, Batman and his, you know, his kind of, because in this movie too, uh, Batman or Bruce Wayne has two times, I believe he wants to just wrap it up. He's like, you know what? I'm done being Batman. I can't do this anymore. And he debates with himself about whether his code is, you know, the correct way to, to go about uh, fixing Gotham. And he has serious uh, quandaries and kind of uh, internal struggles about if he's doing the right thing. Joker doesn't have that. Joker just licking his lips, uh, melodious tone in his voice, and he's just having fun just being himself. I mean, it's a psychotic, you know, uh, murderous weirdo, but he's himself. <laughs> and so... I mean, he's just got these great lines, too, when he's just like, why so serious? And, you know, I mean, he's in the gravest of situations. He's murdering people. And he, to him, it's just a laugh. I mean, everything, nothing means everything, anything. So everything kind of resonates harder on screen. I mean, to him, he could care. It's like when he says he's just a dog chasing cars, he wouldn't know what to do with one if he caught it. It's just like you just laugh because you get that mental image. It's just perfect, you know, tongue wagging. And just him kind of, you know, just enjoying uh, his innate nature. Because this is definitely, and that's the coolest thing too. You don't, you don't have any background as to why he is the way he is or the origin story behind him. He's just fully formed. He's in your face. And even when they, he tells a few people the story of how he got the scars on his face, uh, he switches the story. The first time, he, it's his father who's uh, drunk and tries to attack his mother and he tries to distract her and distract him. And his dad, you know, puts a, uh, puts a smile scar on his face to kind of teach him a lesson. And you're like, Oh, so that's how it happened. Okay. Interesting. And then two or three scenes later, when he's circling Rachel Dawes, like a shark, he's telling her that his wife got in some gambling troubles and she couldn't pay, they couldn't, and they cut her face and they couldn't pay for surgeries. So he put a razor in his mouth and you know gave him the self the scars to make her feel less you know alone about that stuff and you're just like oh my god he's just making this up on the fly just good improvisation skills too i mean just good adaptation so he'd probably be a good podcaster oh he'd be an excellent podcaster with that voice too oh my god i mean he could he could command a room i would i would definitely love to be on a podcast with him although not in the same room we do it we do a zoom we do it remotely because i'm <laughs> To be in the same room as the Joker, might it might things might end badly. He would probably just kill me just to hear the sound on the radio or just to freak people out. So, I mean, this role shouldn't have worked. It just, it's laughable at times and it's way over the top, but he kind of makes you believe that this person actually exists in the real world, which there's no one, there's no one like this. <laughs> there's no, there's no Joker. I can't think of, I mean if you rack your brain about all the serial killers we've had, no one's on this level and, you know, has that cult of personality where they could corral, you know, hundreds of people to basically take over a city. Cause that's where, I mean, that's the cool thing about Nolan. He wanted to make a movie that was on the ground kind of centered in if Batman was realistic, how would this be? And to make someone like the Joker ground in reality, I mean, God bless. I don't know how you did it, but you did it. And so let's, th let's go back. And so what were my favorite scenes with him? I mean, every scene was my favorite scene with him. They're, they're all fantastic. 
But when he breaks into Bruce Wayne's house for his fundraising party for Harvey Dent, and he's just, you know, messing with all the uh, all the uh, guests and just, you know, eating the hors d'oeuvres, throwing around champagne, just making off the cuff comments, and he just he just feels comfortable there. Like you know, what I mean, like normally when people make these giant moves or have these giant uh, action sequences, there's kind of some kind of stress or some kind of, you know, they want to do it like a professional, but he's just, he's treating it like it's a weekend at the park. He could care less. (laughs) And of course, I mean, all his plans when it came to uh, getting Harvey, uh, killing Harvey Dent, uh, or when it came to making Batman expose himself, they were very highly orchestrated and seriously organized plans for that were very based on timing. And he kind of, it seems like he knew exactly what other people were going to do to try to foil him and would react accordingly. Like when he was interrogated by Batman in the MCU, you know, where the cops keep uh, criminals, he wanted to get caught because he wanted to uh, get Lao, uh, the Asian dude, uh, who was like the banker for the mob out so that he could get half of their money, half of the mob's money. Cause that's what he promised them. And then, I mean, when he actually does it because he puts a bomb in his, uh, in one of his assistants, uh, stomachs and has him blow up, which, you know I mean? It's so that the fact that no one brings up that that's laughable, is pretty fucking funny <laughs> that, that, uh, that this movie is just, you're just so enthralled and you're just so taken by it that uh you kind of let you kind of like let you don't you let your imagine go with imagination go with it you're not you're not worried about the uh the realism of it even though you feel like it's believable in the moment and when he's in that in that cop car at the end just uh out of the i mean when he escapes from prison and he's just putting his head out the window like a dog and just kind of just enjoying the wind i mean he's just he's a natural monster and i could watch natural monsters all day every day and he's the best one without a doubt and i think i'll i'll get a second part in later and i think i'm gonna cut it for now so stop being serious and just be like the joker i mean don't because then the world will go to anarchy but just enjoy the joker enjoy that you have some of the joker in you that you have some of the of the crazy confidence in yourself somewhere i think we all do and that's why it's appealing because you know there's part of you inside that can kind of just come out like that. So that's all I got.